first budget from the NDP government and shenanigans aplenty in the first full week at the legislature sitting. Joining me to talk about that and more are Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, Rich Coleman, the interim leader of the BC Liberal Party, joins us. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. For Kamloops Computer Center, here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for taking some time out of your morning to tune in and give us a listen. And like every Friday morning, I'm absolutely delighted to spend it with my two guests, Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Welcome, guys. Good morning, Shane. Uh, Before we jump into the nitty gritty, uh, I thought we should maybe start where we uh, left off uh, last week. Uh, We all thought uh, that it was going to an NDP MLA, rather Raj Chuhan, uh, as far as the speaker position. Of course, minutes after the show ended, uh, we were all wearing a little egg on our face in that one, weren't we? You had to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> I had someone. Usually, t- usually, it takes weeks, sometimes months, for me to be proven wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it only took less than an hour, and look. Yeah. It wasn't just that I got it wrong and said that was going to happen, but I completely overlooked my friend Mike Smith uh, from the Province newspaper, who had already picked up on the fact that the. Uh, the New Democrats had worked out a deal with Liberal MLA Daryl Plekis, and uh, they were about to spring that surprise on the BC Liberals. Yeah, I I was so convinced, Keith, uh, by what you had to say. I actually ignored a good source of mine who, who said it was going to be Plekis. So yeah, no, it's uh, in full credit to Mike Farnworth, uh, the NDP House leader, who'd been working on Plekis after being tipped off by Andrew Weaver, the Green leader, that Plekis was potentially interested in this. So. Farnworth had this in his back pocket for several weeks, and uh, now I'm kicking myself. He phoned me in, in uh, mid-August telling me just out of the blue that, you know what, I think our government's going to be, uh, uh, we're going to hang around for some time. We're more stable than a lot of people think. And I thought, well, yeah, okay, I'm not going to argue with you. But he kept hammering mm-hmm. it at home, saying, no, we are more stable than, than many people think. And the reason he was, he was pressing that argument, because he knew at that time in August, that Plekis was going to be speaker, and that would give the NDP a three-seat cushion in the House, which is uh, enormous compared to what they look like on May 9th. Yeah, absolutely, and that does give them much-needed breathing room. I was talking to the Premier last week who said it now frees him up to leave the legislature, uh, potentially go to the First Minister's meeting next month in Ottawa, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's true. Now, I will say one thing, which is um, I do think that Plekis could have done this cleaner, uh, you know, he had assured his caucus members, he told the public, he told his people in his writing that this would be dishonorable if he did this, that he wouldn't do it without the blessing of the caucus. Mm. I understand he changed his mind, but it strikes me that uh, the NDP had fun keeping this a big secret. But Plekis could have called a press conference on Thursday to announce he changed his mind, that he was going to sit as an independent in the House and that he was going to seek the office of speaker. I think he is taking a bit of heat in his writing and and from people who supported him that he didn't have to be this sneaky about it. He didn't have to just blindside his colleagues. He could have been upfront about what he was doing and why. I knew note that uh, Mr. Plekis, I don't know if he's chatted with either of you two, I reached out to him and haven't heard back, uh, and his office is saying he's essentially doing no media, although he did talk to Ty Olson down at the Abbey Times where he really took issue with the fact that people are accusing him of lying. Keith? Yeah, yeah well, uh, the speaker actually dropped by my and Vaughn's office because we're in a different building in the legislature. We're in the, in the old armory building yeah. in a tour. Uh, by the sergeant at arms and the clerk of uh, of the precincts, and suddenly found himself face to face with us in his in our offices. We didn't get into any 
great detail with him on on why he did what he did. But uh, he's, uh, I think he, the emotions that were there on display when he first, uh, when he when he was basically escorted to the chair, I think of starting to subside uh, with the Liberals. Uh, they've now accepted, I think, are starting to accept that he's there, he's the Speaker. They have to, everybody has to live together, and it's going to be longer than people thought. It's not a, just a, a, an election, uh, you know, over the horizon there. It's going to be an election sometime out, and everybody has to get back to work. So I think uh, the line stuff, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's insisting that he was basically told to say what he said by the by the uh, Liberal caucus people, uh, and uh, he resents the the fact that uh, these accusations of lying. But I, I think all that's starting to subside around the house. That business is starting to get on as usual. I think a lot of this stuff, as dramatic as it was, is is going to start to uh, subside and and ebb away. Yeah, it could be kind of come uh, a little more normal. Uh, I wanted to jump to another topic. Uh, I'm always interested uh, in in what's going on in the legislature. I was struck this week by some of the theatrics around uh, the banning of union and corporate donations. The NDP, of course, have promised to tackle this, although they have yet to table anything. Uh, and Andrew Wilkinson took advantage this week, Vaughn. Yeah, the, uh, the, they've all taken advantage on stuff. Uh, <laughs> the, we're finally starting to see the Liberals getting off with doing the job that they are there to do, which is opposition. So you had uh, two or three episodes at the ledge this week where the opposition upstaged the government. You're right, uh, Wilkinson of the Liberals brought in kind of a, a prematurely correct bill on how we should change union and corporate donations. The government said, wait for their bill, it's coming next week. Uh, I think you also saw, Keith and I, I would say that for the first time, we saw some good performances in question period, and I would say particularly by Todd Stone from Camelot. Mm. I thought he really upstaged the NDP on the decision to cancel the Massey Tunnel. Yeah, Keith, we talked about that on the show a few weeks back, how the experience of the Liberal opposition could really make life uh, interesting for the NDP government. We definitely saw some shades of that this week. I actually think uh, the liberals, some of these liberals, have performed better in question period in opposition than they were in government. Mm. <laughs> was never particularly strong, I thought, in question period as a minister, and neither was Coralie Oakes, who uh, the member for uh, for Caribou. Uh, but in opposition, they're uh, they're pretty good, and I think uh, as well as a few. I mean, Mike DeYoung, of course, uh, he's a veteran of the House. He's he's fine. Jazz Joe Hall is emerging as a pretty good uh, a critic of well a newcomer there so the liberals you know they've got a lot of files they've obviously photocopied when they left office and took with them and todd stone laid one at uh, the ndp's feet where he you know kept a copy of his briefing note on the massey bridge uh, massey tunnel bridge replacement project uh, and it didn't get a huge amount of pickup but i think it served notice to the ndp that uh, the liberals are going to be uh, I think quite formidable as an opposition. This fall really is a training session for both sides. Uh, it's a it's a it's a new session, and both sides are settling in. The real test will come starting in February. But I think the Liberals are in, in a pretty good position to uh, hold the NDP's feet to the fire. Yeah, Vaughn, what did you think of this note that apparently Rob Fleming left in his desk that the Liberals got their hands on that they're waving as proof positive that the Massey Bridge was always going to be killed? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think the NDP had any intention of letting the Massey project go ahead. Uh, for one thing, uh, by getting rid of it, it, it took $3.5 billion in projected debt off the books, giving them leeway to do some of what they want to do. The problem that was raised by what Stone did this week is Stone produces a briefing note 
written by the same Highways Ministry staff that now work for the NDP. And what it says is that one of the two bids for that project, he came in, came in $900 million under budget. Now, that almost never happens in government. <laughs> We're used to over-budget. But, but a bidder out there, still unnamed, had come up with an innovative way to build this new 10-lane bridge, two lanes for transit, eight for, for traffic, replace the tunnels, and do it for $900 million less than the highways ministry thought it could be done for. Fairly innovative idea. Um, the problem that the Democrats have with this is not what happened this week, but they're studying alternatives to that. They're going to come back next year with their idea for how to deal with the congestion and safety issues at the tunnel. Well, if their idea ends up costing more than this innovative idea that was laid out this summer, um, that's going to be their problem. If they can't come in at $2.6 because the, the, the offer that Stone disclosed to the House this week expired on the 24th of August. That bidder has walked away now, mm. and I don't know if they'll be back. I don't know if somebody else has got a better idea and a cheaper one, but it is would be a bit embarrassing if the New Democrats end up having to do the bridge after all, and it ends up costing more than this discount version that the Liberals had. As it is likely to do with every minute that goes by and costs rise. Let's take a quick break here on Inside Politics and NL. On the other side, a new report's come out on the site. See Dan, we'll talk to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry about that. More on Inside Politics on NL after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, a new uh, review of Site C is raising questions about that project's ability to be delivered on time and on budget. Vaughn, you did a story that's out this morning about that. Uh, What strikes you about this new report? So last Friday afternoon, this report was posted on the Utilities Commission website. Then they took it down because they thought they'd disclosed some stuff they shouldn't have, and they Mm. put it back up. So it's kind of a... It it kind of got off to a bad start, but here's the deal. Uh, The government asked the Utilities Commission to answer a bunch of questions in very short order. They have to get the report out by next Wednesday. So the commission went and hired Deloitte, which is the big international accounting firm, to basically go over Hydro's numbers and check and give a verdict on whether or not the project was on time and on budget. Um, It's in serious, there's serious concerns about it, is the best you can say. Um, We've talked about these tension cracks that opened up in the bank, on the north bank of the Mm -hmm. river. Uh, They've thrown the project off schedule. Uh, The builder, the main contractor there, uh, is saying uh, we're going to have trouble meeting the target uh, of diverting the river. The river has to be diverted in September of 2019 for the project to remain on schedule. It's a big river. The only time you can divert it through tunnels to start building the dam is when the river's at low water. You need the WAC Bennett Dam and Williston Reservoir as a backup to maintain water levels. It's a very tight time frame. If you miss that September target, 2019, Shane, you're off a full year. And the other thing that this report identifies is they've already run through a lot of the contingencies on that project. So on time and on budget, technically, yes, but a big question mark over it. And that will go into the mix for the Utilities Commission when they issue their preliminary report 
next Wednesday. Yeah, about half the contingency budget, two years in, I believe, is what you said this morning, Vaughn. Uh, Keith? Well, it's, uh, it's one of these glass-half-full, half-empty type reports. I mean, it's, uh, it, it paints a, an alarming scenario of some uh, ways that costs can escalate significantly. As Vaughn mentions, that I don't think people realize, because of the climate up there the, and, and some of the technical issues, that river can be diverted between September 1st and September 30th, and that's it for the entire year. I mean, there's, it, it can't be diverted in March. It can't be diverted in November. It's that one month. So everything hinges on that. And if there's a delay of, uh, of another year, that will add a couple of billion, if not more, to the final cost. Having said that, uh, the report also points out how much money has been spent and committed and how much it would cost to sort of close everything up. It, it basically paints a picture that it's, it's no use suspending the, uh, the, uh, the project. It's either complete it or kill it, and because uh, the cost of suspension would be even more than killing it. So we're talking uh, if you kill the project and not go ahead with it, you're probably looking at all in. Uh, probably $5 billion when you took a look at how much money has been spent already, how much is committed, and how much the cleanup cost would be, uh, versus potentially a couple billion dollars overrun. So do you kill it and lose $5 billion, $4 billion, and have absolutely nothing to show for it? Or do you, uh, do you take a chance and complete the project and maybe spend $10 billion, uh, rather than the 8 or $9 billion, or spend $11 billion? Uh, either way, it's an extraordinarily expensive proposition, but uh, the government's going to be faced with an interesting task, whether to kill it and have nothing to show for it, uh, for, for inflicting you know, $5 billion of debt on the taxpayers, mm. or inflict even more debt on the taxpayers, but at least have a dam that will generate electricity for 100 years to show for it at the end of the day. It's, uh, it's going to be an interesting decision by the government later this, this fall or early winter. Yeah. Vaughn, uh, in your mind, I mean, the, the BCUC's sort of abbreviated review is already problematic enough, and they're going to be inundated with uh, people who have a dog in the fight one way or another. How much do you think this report, an independent report, will carry weight with them? Well, the commission has been very, very careful about what it says it's doing here. They Right at the front, they said we're not issuing recommendations. The commission does do full-blown reviews of BC Hydro projects. That takes 18 months to two years. This is a fast-tracked, answer-some-questions exercise. The commission's is quite clear. Next Wednesday, they will issue a preliminary answer to the questions raised by camp cabinet. They're then doing public input sessions around the province. Again, you're hearing the ads. These are not public hearings. Mm. What you have to do is if you want to talk about Site C, you have to register with the commission. You get five minutes to go in and say what you think. The commission is going to then pull all that together, deliver a final report to Cabinet on November the 1st. But again, they're saying these will not be recommendations. These will be answers to the questions that Cabinet asked. And I think from what we see with this report from Deloitte is there's a big range of possibilities. You're probably not going to get definitive answers. You're going to get scenarios, and that will end up on the Cabinet table for the Cabinet to decide. 
Meanwhile, Shane, are you on the distribution list for the weekly Site C construction bulletins? Uh, I am not, no. You really want to get on this. You can go right. on the Site C site and uh, ask for it. Mine just arrived this morning. It is a fascinating thing. Every week they tell you what we're doing at Site C this week. <laughs> they are working, Keith gets these as well, they are working night and day and on weekends, and there's a long list of everything they're doing there. So while people out there who don't want Site C to happen are expecting this thing is going to get canceled, BC Hydro is working flat out, moving millions of cubic yards of earth, drilling tunnels, building coffer dams. Uh, They've got a machine shop there for the construction of the turbines and the generators. Um, it, when you see the bulletin on construction, it's hard to believe with the project proceeding flat out until the day cabinet makes its decision that the decision will be, oh, let's undo everything and put it back yeah. the way we found it. I, I, I still expect they'll go ahead on this, but, you know, I, I, I may be wrong, as you discovered last week on the Speaker of the Legislature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is It is an incredibly difficult project to unwind, and I, I, I really wonder if it is not seriously past the point of no return. Well, uh, you know, I've been to that site. Vaughn's been to that site. I was there during the election campaign. It's enormous how much work is going on there, how much the landscape has been altered. It's interesting also the commission is not interested in a whole bunch of issues that people bring to the table. They're not interested. Their terms of reference are basically confined to the budget, to the numbers, is it is it going to be on time and on budget, and on energy supply. If we don't build Site C, is there something else that is as dependable as hydroelectricity uh, and uh, and as cost-effective? And really, when you start looking at that, uh, a lot of things fall off the table. Wind and solar, as beloved as those projects are for a number of people, they are not as dependable as hydroelectricity. Uh, if, the, if the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you don't have energy. And former utilities chairs uh, Mark Jacquard and uh, Marvin Schaefer, who were there under the NDP, have both made the argument that uh, all the problems associated with Site C aside, it's still more dependable and better in the long run than anything else. So you might as well build the thing. And I have to wonder whether or not, ultimately, that's not going to be the decision of the NDP government. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to come. Uh, we've hit the bottom of the hour. Let's get her caught up in our bottom of the hour news update. And on the other side, uh, we'll have more with uh, Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry here on Inside Politics. Uh, before we jump into the uh, fiscal situation that we got uh, a peek at earlier this week, the new uh, budget, the interim budget, I did want to talk marijuana in the last segment, which we didn't get time to, so I just want to jump on that real quickly. Uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth is meeting with his federal colleagues today, uh, day two of meetings on uh, many issues, marijuana among them. Uh, Keith, how big an issue is this for the province? I think it's going to be a huge one, especially as we get closer to legalization, but there's a lot of work on the province the shoulders here with an abbreviated timeline. Yeah, no, and Mike Farnworth, uh, the minister yesterday, said everything's on the table, uh, not ruling anything out, including potentially selling marijuana in government liquor stores. Uh, But it's a political challenge for the NDP government on this. It's a potential minefield. Mike Morris, the former Solicitor General, who had that office for a couple years, said uh, his officials had been studying it for some time and were, you know, 
point out just how complicated this is. It's uh, it's not an easy situation to implement. He says there is uh, all sorts of pitfalls associated with various um, aspects of it. They've uh, he says they looked at uh, situations of of uh, worrying about uh, the increase in p- potential big increase in the number of drivers mm-hmm. of, of people driving under impairment through marijuana. Uh, alcohol's been rigidly in, uh, regulated for years in this province, of course, and, and now you're potentially adding another uh, drug uh, into this uh, regulation mix, and it's, it's going to be very uh, challenging, I think, for the government to, to uh, pull this off without uh, necessarily endangering public safety or health of people, even inadvertently. It's not, it's not an easy issue for a government to grapple with. Yeah, and I know the big concern that everyone you know tells me about is, oh, uh, we got to protect the children. Although I will note the caveat there is that children are, are no less protected than they are today, as it is easier than ever to get your hands on marijuana. Uh, Vaughn? Yeah, and you've also got three levels of government here. So you've got federal government, the provincial government, local government. And if you listen carefully to what the politicians are saying at all three levels, they want a good share of the revenue and to stick the problems with some other level of government. <laughs> I mean, it's a real bargaining that's going on here. Mm. One of the bargainings is governments do expect this is going to be some kind of windfall on revenue. They're not really sure how that was going to work. But they also don't want to have to absorb all of that windfall in dealing with the policing issues and the regulatory issues and all that. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. I think the B.C. government is delighted that Ontario has gone first in saying we're going to put this into government liquor stores because if the New Democrats had led the way on that, of course, they would be accused of just right. climbing into bed with the public sector union. So, uh, you know, that may be, end up being the right decision, but um, there's an, still an awful lot of stuff to be worked out on this. All right, uh, let's talk about the B.C. budget. Uh, obviously, a much leaner surplus forecast, uh, somewhere in the 250 around $250 million range over the next three years. Uh, but noticeably absent in that budget document was major promises, $10 a day daycare, probably the priciest among them. Then there's the $400 renter's subsidy, uh, not to mention a very pricey infrastructure list and some big holes driven through revenue. Uh, are they in, in for a big challenge ahead here, Keith? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they've got, uh, uh, they better hope the economy doesn't uh, yeah. south anytime soon because revenues will be affected big time. So, uh, $250 million, or two, uh, roughly $250 million surplus, but a $600 million contingency fund, which is significant, a $300, $350 million forecast allowance. So, I mean, there's about a billion dollar cushion built into the budget for uh, Carol James, you know, in case anything goes. Uh, south, but as you mentioned, Shane, that daycare promise is enormously expensive, mm-hmm. and the renter's rebate is also expensive as well, but you put those two together, that surplus is gone, so is the cushion, gone. And uh, what was fascinating about this budget is uh, the Green Party opposes both of those programs. The Green Party's in favor of a, a yeah. daycare expansion, but they don't like the NDP's $10 daycare thing is uh, drawn up on the back of a napkin. Uh, it provided cover for Carol James not to include it in the budget, which saved her uh, money. But at some point, as the next election approaches, the pressure on the NDP to deliver the goods on these two promises is going to be enormous. And they're going to have to call Andrew Weaver and the Greens bluff on this and say, we don't care if you support it or not, we're putting it in the budget. Uh, at probably the budget just before the next election. But it is an enormously expensive one, and as MSP premiums start to, uh, to decline and the revenue there 
starts to disappear, the budget pressures on the NDP government are going to be enormous, even with the increase in the carbon tax, which is going to be no longer revenue neutral, which yep. gives them a bit of a cushion there. But boy, uh, Carol James, because of those election promises, she's got a big challenge to bring in balanced budgets from here on in. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn, do you think they can dance around uh, actually tabling a deficit or no? Well, they promised balanced. <laughs> But this is going to be the easiest budget that uh, Carol yeah. James ever delivers, uh, yeah. however long she's Minister of Finance. A much bigger challenge for next February. And it's interesting how Andrew Weaver kind of provided her with cover, because she could say, well, I couldn't do the child care thing yet, because our partner in government hasn't agreed, signed mm-hmm. off on the plan yet. And, well, we didn't do the renters thing either, because we still have to talk to the Greens about it. As Keith points out, if they'd had to do those two, they would have had a deficit. So... Weaver provided a, a, a bit of a, a bit of cover, but you know, Keith and I had an interesting chat with Weaver this week, which you know, the fine print of that agreement that he signed with the NDP, there's a very ambiguous statement in it. So, the Greens agreed to vote for NDP budgets to supply the NDP with money, but also confidence. The measure of confidence whether you're the government or not, is you can get budgets through the House. So the Greens agreed to that. But the fine print of the agreement says that that doesn't mean that the Greens will support every single provision in the budget. Mm. They've reserved the right for themselves to um, essentially vote against some kinds of legislation, including some provisions in budget legislation. The ambiguous part is, how far could they go in stripping provisions out of an NDP budget? Well, they'd need liberal support to do it. How far could they go before suddenly the government doesn't have the confidence of the House? That has not been sorted out, but it does give Andrew Weaver some bargaining leverage on things like the child care plan and the renter's grant. And the, and the Greens are sending out mixed messages. Weaver says, uh, well, we're not going to support the, the renter's uh, rebate or, or the daycare plan. Tanya first was another Green Party MLA. The next day said, well, I wouldn't vote against the, uh, the NDP government on those two bases. Uh, so there seems to be a, a potentially a emerging split in the Green uh, caucus, even though they only have three seats. They don't seem to agree on how far they're willing to go to block two key uh, NDP campaign promises, which aren't going to be in front of the House right now or this session, but will presumably be in front of the House either next budget or the one after that. And First to Know and Weaver right now are sending out different messages. Yeah, uh, before we go, I wanted to talk about, because I think it's one of the, uh, and you already mentioned it, Keith, but I think it's one of the more interesting changes in that budget document, and that's removing the revenue neutrality requirement from the carbon tax. Yeah. Now, the pro and con of that is they can free up the money to use on transit, something the previous Liberal government refused to do. Uh, the con on it is, of course, then it pot- potentially poses itself as a bit of a piggy bank issue. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really sorry to see that, Shane. Uh, carb- revenue neutrality was one of the great innovations in our carbon tax. And, it, you know, we haven't done a hell of a lot in British Columbia that's got praised all around the world. But the carbon tax here did get praise in a lot of places, including an editorial in the New York Times. And one of the things that other places admired was that we had a tax that had an incentive to, to reduce emissions, but that was revenue neutral. And I was sorry to see the New Democrats turn it into just like any old other tax, a cash cow for government. I think they made them, I think they could have changed the the tax incentives, the offsets, 
that make revenue neutrality. They could have given more breaks to people. They could have created other incentives. But I wish they'd kept the principle. I think it was worth keeping. I think they've given the Liberals a big issue to play with in the next election because the Liberals will be able to paint the, re- the carbon tax now as simply as a huge uh, cash cow and that uh, the NDP will be adding to every year about $5 a, a, a ton lift every year. That's about a quarter of a billion dollars every year. It's going to go up. It's going to be approaching $2 billion by the next vote, and it's not going to be revenue neutral. And it gives the Liberals a great opportunity to paint the NDP by their old, uh, their old image, which is tax and spend, and the NDP is always vulnerable to that. Yeah, and I asked uh, Finance Minister Carol James flat out if uh, she would agree to keep or, you know, guarantee the government would keep its hands off that carbon tax money. And uh, her reply to me was basically, oh, we're going to be very transparent about every dollar coming in and reporting and every dollar going out. But there was no ironclad pledge to keep their hands off the money. And I I suspect that there's a good reason behind that. Once it goes into general revenue, uh, the transparency is gone. You can can say, well, it's all going for great programs to cut down on, on uh, pollution, but you can also make the argument, no, it's not. It's going to pay for wage increases in the public sector, or it's going for this or that. Uh, no, once it's no longer revenue neutral, it's uh, hard to make the argument it's going for any specific program. All right, final word to you, Vaughn. Yeah, revenue neutrality was audited separately. So we had a report every year. You could see it. And in fact, the tax cuts were bringing in, were, were worth more than the carbon tax. So again, they could have messed with that a bit. But uh, no, it was, it was a really great innovation and a unique one to British Columbia. And I think just tossing it over the side because they want to spend the money uh, was a bad move. All right, gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, that's Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer here on Inside Politics. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, the B.C. Liberals' interim leader, Rich Coleman, joins us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to be joined on the line now by the B.C. Liberal Party interim leader, Rich Coleman. Rich, how are you? Not too bad. Yourself? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Hey, before we get into the the deep end here, I I was thinking uh, earlier today, so correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it would have been yourself, Mike DeYoung, and maybe Shirley Bond, who was with the government, uh, with the Campbell government before, or with Gordon Campbell before he formed government? No, it was actually myself and Mike you were right about, but Linda Reed was the only other one. Linda Reed. Oh, okay. So Shirley came on later then. All right. Shirley came in in 2001 when we got to government. All right. Uh, so uh, this must be interesting for you. I know I was talking to Mike Farnworth. He's the only MLA on the other side who was in government and then 16 years later finds himself back in government. It must be an interesting perspective from you, sort of, you know, being in opposition and then such a long time in government and then here you are again. It is. A di- well, it's totally different. I mean, opposition yeah. is completely different versus government. Uh, you know, you have to you have to shift from saying, you know, we're going to do something particularly around a policy or whatever versus to shifting to say what's going on here and where do we, as an opposition, do our job to hold the government to account, right? So it's a total shift of psyche. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what's your strategy as the interim leader? You've obviously laid one out. I noticed that you didn't go with incumbent ministers as critics. Uh, you've, you've switched that up. Uh, so what would that and the strategy in the legislature for you right now? Well, I did switch up a number of things when I was asked to do this job back in August. First of all, I had to write a plan because uh, we were starting from scratch and had to get uh, staff in place and organize it and all that, all the rest of it. 
It really is about making sure that a group of people, some new, obviously we had a number of new people like those MLAs who get the opportunity to get on the ground and understand the job of opposition, understand doing things like estimates, questions and question period, research to uh, look at how things compare to bring the comparison and all those things. And that's why when I did the critic roles, uh, I looked at what we had done. Well, I was there in 2000, or sorry, 1996, and we did sort of spread the critic roles around and split them up in order to see get people basically understanding their role, but at the same time to identify where the talent is for certain uh, jobs. For instance, in about 97, 98, we actually switched to we knew who our good questioners were by then, so they did more maybe more question period stuff, and our really good researchers and debaters in and around budgets and, and estimate debates or people that are really good on, on debating legislation all found their their sea lakes, so to speak, and all learned mm -hmm. their jobs. These guys are all learning their jobs now, and I have to admit that I'm I'm really pleased with how well they're doing. I mean, they really have uh, adjusted the, the role well, and I think they're doing exceptionally well, uh, which is good. I, I really feel good about it. All right. Let's go back to last Friday. Obviously, uh, you not very happy with Daryl Plekis taking the speaker position. I know in the heat of the moment, uh, uh, you blasted him as, a, as sort of betraying the party and threatened a recall campaign. Was that the emotion of the moment, Rich, or were you serious about that recall pledge? Um, I think the recall pledge comes from his riding association, who I even heard from one of them this morning. They're going to start the work and be ready in 14, 15 months. They're really disappointed in him because he told them he would never do this, and, and they, the members of the executive believe that. He told me he would never do this because, obviously, the speaker going into the chair affects the number of votes the opposition has. Traditionally, the speaker comes from government. Um, and the reason for that is that they put someone in the role and, and, and because they're the government, so they put someone up and the House usually does not put anybody else up because then it's the, sh the choice of the government. My biggest problem with what he did is not telling me the truth directly to my face when I asked him about it. And so from my perspective, uh, and, and I guess it's the way I was, I was raised, you know, lying was something in my household that was not something that you did. And when you don't tell someone the truth, uh, it's very disappointing, and I think you lose a lot of respect, and I've lost all respect for him. All right. Uh, let's talk about some of the major projects out there. Uh, I don't know if you're listening in, but uh, Keith and Vaughn and I were talking about Site C. In your opinion, is this project, is there just too much time and money invested in this thing to wind it down? If they wind it down, there'd be, it would be a huge mistake on behalf of the government. Uh, first of all, yeah, it's going to cost you about 4 or $5 billion to wind it down and just put that on the debt on the backs of our children and our grandchildren for no reason. The electricity is needed in the long-range plan for us. So if you look at uh, the northeast part of the problem where oil and gas drilling takes place, one of the things we were working with with the federal government was to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from that area. In order to do that, you need to electrify. In order to electrify, you need electricity. Site C is right there and it would have helped us to deal with the climate side of, of, of that. The other piece of it is, of course, you know, society is going to change over the next decade. There's going to be more vehicles like electric cars, and if you look at the demand side management, you start adding these type of things into what we need for electricity. We better plan now or we won't have the power to be able to do these things. And so Site C is like adding another battery to make you be, make you to be able to last longer because the water behind the dams is that's exactly what it is. So it also allows us to do the things like renewables because you'll hear the Green Party and others say well, we should be doing solar, we should be doing wind, and that's true. We want to do more solar and wind, but when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, 
you need something to back that up, and that's what a hydroelectric dam is. So it actually balances the power so you don't lose power during the period of times you may not have the other resource. It allows you to manage a grid of power stably. And in, in British Columbia, it's probably got the most stable grid in North America, if not the world, the way, it's, the way we have the backup to our system. And so it would, it's, it's, it's a good project. It's employing 2,600 people from all over BC. Actually, you know, six of them or seven of them are from the Premier's own riding, and there's from all over the place, including Kamloops and Campbell River and Nanaimo and even Langley. So um, I think it would be a mistake because I think it went through a rigorous, it did go through a very rigorous process, probably over 20 years. and. The environmental assessment that was done on it and the stuff with the approvals that needed to be done was, were extremely well done, highly detailed, and, and even the First Nations work was pretty spectacular. So I, I think they'll find that uh, they're going to have to go ahead with it anyway. If they don't, then they're going to take a bunch of money that will affect the future of our children, and then someday we're still going to need the electricity. Yeah. Uh, let's turn our attention to the leadership race with the time we have left here. Uh, I guess the big question here, I know that uh, uh, you have not made any comment or not made any, uh, you can't in your role, but uh, have you absolutely, absolutely 100% ruled yourself out of the leadership? Uh, you know, it's not a fair question because I'm in the role of the opposition leader right now and, I, and my job has to be focused there. And if something changed, I would have to step down in this role I don't anticipate anything changing from that, but uh, I, I think uh, we wait to see for all of us. I mean, I, I think there's probably going to be seven or eight candidates. Uh, none of them have actually filed their papers yet and put in their deposits. So at this point in time, there's nobody in the race. Yeah. Michael Lee, Mike Bernier, Todd Stone, Andrew Wilkinson, Mike DeYoung, and Diane Watts are the names out in the field right now. What's your sort of sense on that potential field of candidates? Yeah, I think, and I also think you might see Sam Sullivan, who also has sort of indicated that he might like to be out there to if for nothing else, part of what Sam would like to do is bring new ideas to the conversation, so he may do it as well. And I think there's others still within the caucus that are giving it some thought, but, you know, and probably the best way for them to do it, the quiet way to make the decision is go make the decision with your family, yourself, your supporters, and then decide when you want to announce. Others have been more out there working, as and you're right about the ones, the names you mentioned, they have all been... Uh, approaching members in caucus, the business community, raising money, those sort of things. So I think they will all come into the race at some point. The question is when and what their timing will be. That'll be up to themselves. All right. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you one last question here. And uh, The last throne speech from your government, uh, the one that sort of raised a lot of controversy, was that more problematic than it was worth? Was it, was it, was it a mistake to do that throne speech, Rich? I think a lot of things in that throne speech shouldn't have been there relative to the principles of what we are, but it was to try and bring together to see if we could bring a coalition of people together to have the, the legitimate party that won more seats and had more votes uh, be able to stay in government and work with these guys. That wasn't possible. Our fundamentals go back to the throne speech in February and to our budget in February, and those are the standards that we are and will continue to believe in balanced budgets, creating jobs, working with communities to be successful, and... Uh, and I, I wouldn't put too much into the throne speech. It was a short snapshot in time, uh, in in a pretty turbulent time during in the political period of time in BC. But the reality is, is the fundamentals were the throne speech and our platform that we had for the election, and that's where we'll focus. So that internally hasn't caused any problems. No, I think everybody knew that we had to try and see if there was a conciliatory ability to bring parties together and see if we could work on 
some things together, but that deal was cooked with the uh, Green and the NDP. Today, the Green Party is the NDP, and the NDP is the Green Party. And I think the, uh, the frustration I hear traveling the provinces is that they didn't vote for that. And it's particularly in the interior, very disappointed because, you know, the interior of BC believes that they need economic development and jobs. And right now they've got two parties in Victoria in a very loose coalition that don't believe in any of that as far as the economic development stuff for the interior and the northern part of BC. And I think it's very disappointing. All right, Rich, I always feel like there's never enough time when I talk to you. You're an interesting guy to chat with. Uh, thanks for taking time to talk to us today. Anytime. All right. That's Rich Coleman, the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. We'll take a quick break and we'll return to talk legal marijuana with B.C.'s public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Welcome back. Glad to be joined by B.C.'s public safety minister, Mike Farnworth. Mike, I believe you're going into a meeting today with your federal counterparts down the lower mainland. Among the big topics on the table is legal marijuana. I know that there's some things about uh, the age of prospective users, uh, provincial framework on distribution. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, as far as your top priorities and questions you want answered going in there, what are they? Well, clearly, we want to have a, good, a, a much better understanding of what the federal uh, regulations are actually going to look like, uh, where they are in the development of those regulations, because they're going to have a significant impact on the, uh, the regulatory framework that we have here in British Columbia. Uh, for example, you know, the licenses, the number of licenses. Uh, right now, Bill C-45 and 46 are working their way uh, through uh, the, the federal house uh, dealing with you know uh, the legalization of, of, of cannabis as well as the issue around the impaired uh, driving and drug impaired driving um, 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 issues are being dealt with so I want a thorough update on that be able to ask questions ar- around that but also to get a, a better sense of where our provincial counterparts are in terms of consultation any decisions that they may be coming to in terms of retail models or distribution models uh, which are the areas that the provinces will have jurisdiction under one of the big concerns, of course, as you referenced there, is uh, driving under the influence of marijuana, which uh, has spiked in jurisdictions in the states uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, we have a breathalyzer for alcohol, but uh, what, if anything, can be done for, for drivers that are high, Mike? There are a number of technologies that uh, we understand that uh, the federal government is looking at uh, and the legislation is being developed around, and so that is one of the areas I'm particularly interested to hear what they have to say on on this particular issue. But uh, clearly, it is going to be an issue that is going to need to be dealt with. Police have already uh, identified that as as critical. I mean, we are under a challenging uh, timeline for July of next year, uh, and that's uh, that's why these meetings are so important. Is Is the timeline too short, Mike? I think it's a very challenging timeline. Uh, other provinces have said that already. Uh, many premiers have said that. Um, and, you know, as, as British Columbia's minister, I think it is a, a tough time, a tough uh, timeline. But having said that, um, you know, would I like additional time? Sure. But uh, in the meantime, uh, I'm working to ensure that we are doing everything we can to meet uh, the existing timeline of July of next year. So you wouldn't say, for example, BC would like to see a delay? You wouldn't advocate for that? Um, I, you know, I, that's why I will be talking with my other ministers. I mean, one of the challenges, for example, is that Ontario is now out with its retail uh, distribution model. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it, I think a lot is going to depend on the various stages where provinces are at. But, uh, you know, you can always use more time. I certainly wouldn't say no to it. And I will be raising the challenges uh, that we're facing in B.C. with the minister. Uh, but everything I've heard to date uh, from when this has been raised, that the feds do seem to be sticking firm to that timeline. So in the absence of moving on that timeline, uh, I've got to make sure that uh, we're doing everything we can here in B.C. 
that we're able to uh, to get the regulatory framework in place that BC is responsible for by July of 2018. And one of the big issues I always hear from people, Mike, is is protecting children. Mm-hmm. And so uh, before I ask you what your concerns are there, I'll add the caveat that under the current system, uh, children are certainly are not protected and have more access than ever they have uh, to marijuana. But uh, what can be done on that front under a legal regime? Well, there there are a number of things under a legal regime. I mean, clearly one is to get the black market is to get the black market out of uh, cannabis distribution. That is that is critical. The second is uh, comprehensive uh, education uh, and prevention programs. The third is around the age of um, uh, of use. The feds have said it uh, in their legislation, are saying that it is 18, but it is up to the provinces in to actually set an age. So uh, provinces are free to set a higher age. And again, I'm sure that's one of the issues that will be discussed tomorrow. Um, myself, I'd like to see a uniform age across the country. The feds have also indicated that uh, um, that they up, up to five grams um, could be possessed by someone under that age um, without uh, a criminal a criminal charge. But again, uh, in the case of Ontario, for example, they have set a zero tolerance in the same way they set for alcohol. And so those are uh, you know those are issues that that uh, we need to uh, we need to be dealing with. Uh, but absolutely, you know, parents are concerned about this issue around uh, around uh, the issues around kids and and uh, marijuana. Um, Another area where that that will also have an impact is on the issue of edibles, which the federal government has said they're not dealing with right now, but that is that will be somewhere down the road. And uh, I think that's crucial uh, because from what I've heard from a lot of parents is that's an area that particularly concerns them. Yeah. When we were talking about the kids too, Mike, I keep thinking under a legal regime, you sort of narrow the black market down to a certain age group. If it's legal for everybody else, obviously people selling the black market are now going to target, I don't know, pull an age out of the year 18 and under. So should there be increased fines or increased sort oh, of... Uh, let's put it this way. I think, it, I mean, there's a there's a number of things that, that need to happen. On, on One is to get rid of the black market to make sure you've got the right uh, level of taxation on it. Uh, if you're too high, you won't get rid of the black market. And so that's crucial. And that, uh, my preference would be to see a, as, as much as possible a uniform taxation rate right across the country. Uh, then, second, I mean, if, if once a regime is in place and you're, you're dealing and peddling and you're targeting kids, uh, as far as I'm concerned, throw the book at you. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, as far as a, as a distribution regime, anything on that front? I know the different models have been, uh, or different people have sort of said, hey, look at us, like, for example, the liquor distribution branch, but any kind of narrowing of the scope there or no? No, what I've said is, is that we're prepared to look at all the different models of, uh, of retail uh, as well as different models around distribution um, because, you know, people have come and said, no, you should be done this way, you should be done that way. Ontario has put a model out there. What we want to do is is, is is put in place a model that works for British Columbia, uh, works for, and that's why our consultation process that we've been talking about uh, is going to be critical, talking to local government, talking to uh, First Nations, talking with the industry, talking with health authorities, um, um, talking with experts about, um, you know, the kinds of, of, of models uh, that are in place, because what works in Vancouver may not work in Kamloops, it may not work in Port Coquitlam, or may not work up in Prince, Prince Rupert, for example, so... Yeah, no, fair enough. So any idea as far as you're concerned, a timeline for getting some solid answers and uh, well, getting some of these things? Um, I, you know, this fall it's going to be particularly busy because uh, and legislation that the province is going to be responsible for is going to have to be in place for next spring. So uh, we got a busy, I got a busy several months ahead. 
All right. What's the next speed block for you then? What do we, what do you, after these meetings, what's the next uh, roadblock? Um, well, I know that this will clearly be an issue uh, topic of discussion. My expectation is at UBCM in the, uh, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and municipalities, of course, dealing in a gray area because exactly. uh, it's illegal now, but soon to be legal, and yeah. they're not quite sure what to do with themselves. Yeah, exactly, and that's why uh, you know discussions and consultation with local government is critical. Thanks, Mike. That was Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. And that's it for today's show. We'll see you right here on NL again next Friday with more Inside Politics. Local. First, CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news.